good to be with you all. And uh, I actually get to preach not only today, but next week too. This is kind of a double duty here for me. But uh, Brian's over at Southwood, and I think Blake's on vacation, so it's good to be here. Well, they walked in tandem, each of the 92 students filling into the already crowded auditorium. With their rich maroon gowns flowing and the traditional caps, they looked almost as grown up as they felt. Dad swallowed hard behind broad smiles, and moms uh, freely brushed away tears. The class would not pray during the commencements, not by choice, but because of a recent court ruling prohibiting it. The principal and several students were careful to stay within the guidelines allowed by the ruling. They gave inspirational and challenging speeches, but no one mentioned divine guidance, and no one asked for blessings on the graduates or their families. The speeches were nice, but they were routine, until the final speech received a standing ovation. A solitary student walked proudly to the microphone. He stood still and silent for just a moment, and then it happened. All 92 students, every single one of them, suddenly sneezed, and the student on stage simply looked at the audience and said, God bless you, each and every one of you. And he walked off the stage. The audience exploded in applause. The graduating class had found a unique way to invoke God's blessing on their future with or without the court's approval. (laughs) Well, I thought that was a good one. Maybe I'll have better ones next week. Um, Well, those kids had an agenda. And the question for us today is, by whose agenda are you living? So turn with me to Proverbs, if you've closed your Bibles, to Proverbs chapter 3. And we're going to try to answer this question. A phrase that we often hear is called a bottom line. It comes from the world of business and finance, where it refers to a company's or individual's cash or asset balance. Usually it appears as the final line of the last page of a report or a balance sheet, And so it is referred to as the bottom line. It tells you how you stand on the most important aspect of the report, how much money you made or not. These words appear in other aspects of society as well. For example, a coach may tell his players that the bottom line for their team is the all-important win column. No building up personal statistics or impressing the crowd. Just win, baby. Now, wasn't it Al Davis of the Raiders that used to say that? Just win. So what is the bottom line for you and me as followers of Jesus Christ? What's the bottom line for us? You know, it's not a bad idea to pause and reflect every once in a while. Does my life make any difference to anybody? Is anybody affected by my life? Is my spouse affected by my life? If I were to die today, what difference would my life make? What difference would it make to my neighbor if I were dead and gone? What difference would it make to my colleague at work, to this church, to my family, to the ministry? If you and I claim to be followers of Jesus Christ... Believers of Jesus Christ, lovers of Jesus Christ, then these are valid questions. If we're serious, then our beliefs and our convictions must take shape in dedicated obedience and commitment to the Lord Jesus 
and to honor him at all costs and in all circumstances. We live in alarming times. Let's face it. It's absolutely unbelievable to see what's happening all around us. And some of us who have been around a little bit longer, you can see i got a little bit of gray here. Um, we've seen incredible changes in society. We've seen incredible changes in the culture around us. We've seen the virtual disappearance of morality. We've seen an erosion of biblical Christianity, a lack of spirituality. And this is absolutely amazing. In the last 20 years, you think back to the things that would, have, would be shown on television 20 years ago and look to where we are today. It's unbelievable. It scares me what's going to happen in the next 20 years. That's why we need to be praying the prayer that John prayed at the end of the Bible where he says, Come, Lord Jesus. I just listened on the radio the other day, and it said that 40% of all the babies born in the United States are born to unwed mothers. And that statistic actually is worse in Europe. So it's not just America. It's the world. And friends, the line that separates Christians and non-Christians is getting more and more blurry. And so as I was contemplating these thoughts and I was, I was thinking about this in terms of this message, this thought came to me. And that is that we have been bought with a price. Do you realize that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul is addressing the Corinthians and he says, and the context there is immorality. In verse 18 of that chapter, Paul says, Flee immorality. Then in verse 20 he says, you have been bought with a price. You know, we forget about that, don't we? We love to talk about the fact that God loves us. And we love to talk about the fact that we are saved. And once saved for it, ever saved, eternal security, and all of these wonderful doctrines which are true. But how many times do we stop and think that we enjoy this Christian life and these doctrines and all of this, but, but when did we last time stop and think about the price that was paid? And what was that price that was paid that Paul is referring to? Some years ago when we were working in India as missionaries, some of the churches in the area decided to come together and do a collective Good Friday service and rent this large auditorium downtown. And they asked me to bring the message for the Good Friday service. So I began to do some research on the death and resurrection, actually on the death of Christ. And somebody pointed me to an article in the uh, American uh, Medical Journal written some years ago, I think it was back in... Uh, 88 or something. But anyway, this article was talking about the crucifixion from a medical standpoint. It had diagrams. It had a cross-section of the wrist. Do you know that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, to pay that cost, by the way, the nail was not in the palm of the hand because the weight of the body would rip through these little bones. 
but this is where they put the nail right here in the wrist. And they had a cross-section of it to show where exactly the nail went and how the bones held it in place. And the article, as you can look at that article, you just can't help but just, just stare at it in horror as you look at those diagrams. Because what the Romans had devised was one of the most cruel, one of the most painful ways of dying, and yet one of the slowest ways of dying. They wanted something that would have maximum pain and for as long as possible. So when you were nailed on that cross, you were still alive. And you eventually died because you couldn't breathe anymore, because you died of suffocation, because every time you had to take a breath, you had to push your body up to breathe. We have been bought with a price. Let's not forget that. It's good once in a while to, to reflect on that, isn't it? To realize where we are today and the wisdom that God has given us in here. And it's good to once in a while take a look at that and, and get ourselves back on track. You know, someone said, you know, most of us Christians, we live with Jesus in my back pocket lifestyle. I mean, what in the world is that? Well, we've got a back pocket and there's a zipper on the back pocket, and, the, and it's zipped shut, and there's a tab on the zipper, and it says, open in case of emergency. We cry to God when we have a need. When we're in trouble, we reach out to Him. Life goes on as normal. Nobody really knows around us that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Master of our lives, and every decision we make, we make with absolute devotion to Him. That's how we are to be living our lives. I like this slide that uh, Brad put up when he started the wisdom series in the message. A quote from Chuck Swindoll. Listen to it. Every waking moment of our lives, we operate from one of two viewpoints, human or divine. Then is that true? So next time when you're facing a decision, ask yourself, is this now going to be from my human standpoint? Or what would God have me do at this stage, at this point? We moved here from Pennsylvania almost three years ago now, two and a half, I guess. And um, I want to share something with you. It's about a kid by the name of uh, Mike Mackey, high school kid uh, in the town that we lived. And uh, this article caught my attention, and I cut it out, and I saved it. And the title of it is Matter of Faith, all right? Matter of Faith. Brandy White's senior, Mike Mackey, has made it a habit of not finishing a wrestling tournament when it concludes on Sunday. He was a wrestler, and he did really well. Wrestling is a priority for Mackey, but his beliefs are the priority. Mackey on the mat had a record of 33-0. and 0. His career record was 136-32. and 32. He had highlights with... Uh, 2003 uh, PIAA 145-pounder runner-up, two-time district champ, regional champ, two-time Berks County champ. And if you go on to read the article, he says he uh, got some inspiration from the 1924 Olympics and Eric Liddell, who refused to run on Sunday, representing Great Britain. And, uh, of course, his story was made into a movie, one of my favorite movies, uh, Chariots of Fire. But there's somebody who's on God's agenda, not their own agenda, wanting to please God. 
And so if you're like me, you want to please God too. So let's take a look here in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature. It's what uh, is written by Solomon, one of the wisest men that ever lived. And I want to share something with you from uh, Proverbs chapter 3. By the way, Bruce Walkie, who is an Old Testament scholar, very well known, and an authority in Old Testament literature. You know what he says about Proverbs 3? This is the title he gives the Proverbs, chapter 3. How to be truly wise and successful in life. Well, that's what we want, to be wise and successful in life. And basically, as you look at this passage that was read earlier by Mike, we need to trust in God and live by his agenda. And I want to share two truths for you from these verses, especially verses 5 and 6. But before we get there, notice the first verse. There's a phrase there that I have circled in my Bible. It says, do not forget. Now that caught my attention. This must be something important. Do not forget. Now, why did he say that? Well, you know, we have a propensity to forget, don't we? We all forget. Isn't that why we have, uh, uh, why we build memorials and statues and we carry these daytimers? I put mine in my bag there because of you the know, cell phone. And, you know, people tie ribbons on their fingers. I don't know, do they still do that? Well, I know people write on their hands. I've seen my wife in the grocery store writing something on her hands. What are you doing? I don't want to forget this. So we have, you know, we tend to forget. But here's the important thing, is that in the book of Proverbs, the propensity of ours to forget is not regarded as some mental infirmity, but rather a moral flaw. And that's very interesting to know. It's a moral issue. We forget because we think we know it all. We think we're independent. We forget God's word and how it applies in certain situations. We're giving concession to our own self-independence. A person who really recognizes his need for God would never forget God and what his word says. We forget because we have come to rely more on ourselves than God. We have this attitude that we don't need God. We're self-sufficient. We're confident. We're cocky. We're Texans. Don't mess with Texas. So right here in the beginning of this section, you know, he says, do not forget. And as we look at these verses, look with me this, uh, as Solomon gives us wisdom. In verses 1 through 8, we see not only that wisdom delivers from evil, but there are certain rewards. Look at these rewards. Notice with me verses 1 and 2. Longevity and peace. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Hey, here's a formula. Obey God's word. Apply it to your life. You'll have longevity and peace. All right? Forget about those health supplements. Ginkgo and all that kind of stuff, you know. Just stick with this formula right here. How about favor with God and man in verses 3 and 4? Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Do you see the importance of God's word? Keeping it on your heart. Many of us don't even pick up the Bible except for Sunday morning. If you want wisdom, if you want to live according to the wisdom of God's word, you got to know the word. How about verses 5 and 6? Guidance 
and direction for living. Trust in the Lord. This is going to be our uh, focus this morning, these two verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. There you have it. And it goes on in verses 7 and 8. Good health. Now, living in God's wisdom involves trusting God. And here are two reasons to trust in God. Number one, we need to trust in God because he is sovereign. And number two, we need to trust in God because he's good and only desires good for us. So let's go back to the first one, that he is sovereign. What does sovereign mean? That God is sovereign. It means that he is in control. It means that God knows what he is doing. To be sovereign means to be supreme, to be unlimited, totally independent of any outside influence. God needs nobody's help. He is sovereign. In Pennsylvania, the town we lived in, there was a bank. It was the biggest bank in town, and it was called Sovereign Bank. And, and um, the CEO of it was an Indian. Anyway, this was a huge bank, and um, they, had, uh, they built the big arena for the uh, hockey team and everything. But, you know, I was thinking about that sovereign bank. They, they're just two words that they missed out on their uh, name there, you know? They should have put in, in a slightly smaller word, they should put in, we wish. <laughs> you see, only God is sovereign. Only God has such power and control. Now let's look, about his, look through his sovereignty in a minute here. God's sovereignty extends over all creation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians 1, 16 and 17. If you're looking in the Pew Bibles, it's page 157 in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and notice, in him all things hold together. You know, we're wondering, where in the world does this order in universe come from? What makes the planet stay where they are? What makes the moon stay where the moon is? You know, NASA, it's funny, today's paper, you know, what they, uh, one of the sections that says, NASA needs a new vision. <laughs> I, got a, I got some suggestions for them. But, you know, all these, they're running out of ideas. You know, they're going back to the moon now. I mean, that's old stuff. And um, so, all this stuff in the universe and this entire world... Well, my friends, the Bible says that he holds everything together. He's the one who put it all there. He created it, and he put the order in there. God is sovereign over all creation. Not only that, his control also involves individual lives and destinies. Isn't this amazing? Turn to James chapter 4 and verse 15. It's uh, page 179 in the Pew Bible. Okay, James 4, and look at verse 15. 14 and 15. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. You know, I don't hear that a whole lot anymore. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. We don't say, Lord willing. There was a time when people said that a lot. Do you know the Muslims say that? Inshallah. That means Lord willing. If you fly at Pakistani Airways and then you come to land, the pilot says, we're going to be landing in about 10 minutes. And then he says, Inshallah. God willing. Where do you think they got that concept? And here we've lost it amongst ourselves. God is in control. We need to recognize that each time. We think about it each time, uh, right throughout the day and as we're living. I'll see you tomorrow, Lord willing. God controls individual lives and destinies. So not only does he control the universe, he's also controlling each individual. He controls the governments. Proverbs 21 and verse 1 says that the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of God, and he turns it whichever way he wants. People were very, very concerned about the last presidential election. And my response was, God is still on the throne. God is sovereign. He sees through eyes that we don't have. We see through our own human, limited, sinful, finite perspectives. But God has a totally different perspective. And so God is sovereign. And here's the thing that blows me. This God who controls the universe, who made everything that there is, This huge God who controls governments, who controls lives, he knows when a hair falls off your head. Some of you, there's no problem. (laughs) But God knows that. Isn't that amazing? That blows me away. This kind of a God. I love Graham Kendrick. In one one of my favorite songs, and we sing this in our fellowship, is meekness and majesty. Listen to the words here. Meekness and majesty. Manhood and deity. In perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of infinity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship. For this is your God. That's our God. It shouldn't be hard to trust in a God like that, is it? There should be no problem. That's a wonderful God. In fact, next week, I'm going to be uh, looking at Psalm 139, so you can read ahead if you want. And in Psalm 139, you'll find out what kind of God we have where it says he knows everything about us. Everything. In fact, six verses into the psalm, David gives up and he says, he says, basically, in my translation, it's too much. I can't handle it. That's it. This is the God. But one of you might say to me, you know, that's all fine and dandy. But what about this God who, who uh, takes away a family in an auto accident? makes a baby survive. How about that plane crash that just happened off of the Yemeni coast about a few weeks ago? And they found one survivor out of 156 or 186 some people, a 14-year-old girl, survived. She floated for 18 hours on a piece of debris and they were able to find her. What, What kind of God is that? 
you know. What kind of God is you talking about that makes people suffer, that makes the righteous suffer? In our uh, Indian fellowship, there's a student. He's, a, he's actually a medical student. And uh, uh, he lost his father in a drowning accident in Florida. They were out swimming, having vacation, and he got caught in a, one of these undercurrents and was swept away. His, and his dad was a cardiologist, wonderful Christian family. And uh, I had a chance to visit and meet his mother for the first time last week. Uh, and she said to me, she said, you need to pray for my son. He's still bitter about that accident where I lost my husband. Uh, and this was like three years ago or, or so. And he says he was so upset, he came to me and said, your God is a liar. I don't believe he loves me because you took my daddy away. How do you answer that? You say we are to trust in God. How do we answer that? Well, I'm not God. If I were God, I could tell you. But I'm a sinful, finite human being. All I have is God's word. And I can tell you with confidence that God has his own eternal purposes in all of it that we don't see. And I can tell you with confidence that scripture says he takes no pleasure in hurting anyone. Ezekiel 33 verse 11. And that he is never the author of sin. James 1, 13 and 14. And so even when painful things are happening... God is somehow exercising ultimate control and working things out for his good purposes. Paul believed that. Listen to Paul, how he responded to his imprisonment. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is in prison. He's suffering. He knows he's going to be executed. And you know what he says? I know in whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I've committed unto him against that day. That's Living by God's agenda. That's trusting in God. The word trust in the Hebrew, it literally means to put oneself wholly at the mercy of another. You are to put yourself wholly at the mercy of God. You know, trusting in God has taken on a whole new meaning for several people during this hard economic times. As Brad mentioned earlier, my wife and I are missionaries, so I actually have a dual role. Not only am I on the pastoral staff here, But I'm also a missionary. And the bulk of our salary actually comes through support, through individuals and churches. And right now with the economic situation, things are uh, just a little, well, let's say not too encouraging. But my dear wife said to me just this week, she said, you know what? This is an opportunity for you to practice what you preach. And I said, you got it. We got to trust in the Lord. God's going to provide We've been serving the Lord now for 23 years, and he's never let us down. Why would he now? Nothing in our life happens by chance. God is sovereign. And my friends, these are opportunities to teach our children, to let them see what it means to trust in the Lord, even through difficult times. We will never suffer trials or go through uncertain times unless God allows it knowing that he has personally tailored the events of our lives should dramatically affect how we respond to them. You know, there are, there are two sides to trust in this Hebrew concept of trust. The one is 
when you make a decision to trust. You know, you're in a situation, maybe you're concerned, maybe you're fear, and you make a decision, I'm going to trust in the Lord. There is another aspect in the original text, and that is to have a habit of trust. And that's what the psalmist is referring to here, is to to have a habit of trust, to consistently trust in God. The Bible says we are to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Now, there's an interesting story that uh, Dr. Leitner shares, the former professor at Dallas Seminary, and uh, from Pennsylvania, he says one time his grandfather wanted to make his way across the Susquehanna River. It was the winter time. And so here he was at the edge of the river, on his knees, he was trying to feel the ice to make sure it was nice and hard, and he hears this rumbling sound. And he thought, what is that? And, and, as, and the sound got louder and louder, and um, as he looked, here comes an Amish guy with four horses on his wagon, boom, went right by him across the river. And he just looked, wow. And he goes on to say, you know, that's how we need to trust in God. Not gingerly, not afraid, but with totally with reckless abandonment, as it were. That's trusting in God, because we have an awesome God. Trust and lean are very close in the meaning in the Hebrew language. And the scripture says that we are not to lean on our own understanding. The word lean means not just reclining on something, but relying on it totally for support. So we should not be relying totally on our human understanding. Human understanding is not dependable because it is marred by sin. Man is here today and gone tomorrow, like we just read in James. He's a vapor. He's the created and not the creator. Only the creator is worthy to be trusted. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. You see, your view of God will determine your level of trust in him. Now, not only do we need to trust in God because he's sovereign, but we need to trust in God because he's good and only desires good for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, verse 6, and he will make your path straight. God desires good for you. He will make your path a successful path in the Hebrew language. He will give you success in life. The principle that God is good and desires good is seen throughout Scripture. The psalmist says over and over again, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. Psalm 62, verse 11, David says, Once God has spoken, and twice I have heard that, Lord, thou art strong, and, O God, thou art loving. You see, he promises good to those who trust him. And, you know, if we only knew about God's sovereignty and didn't know about his character, we would be scared. We would be living in fear. But we do know that God is good. And he exercises his control in perfect love. And desires only good for us. Now the fact that God is good. Does not mean that we will not experience suffering. But he will be with us. Through the suffering. There are numerous examples in scripture. Where God uses suffering to bring glory to himself. John chapter 9. Remember the guy who was born blind. The disciples said you know. What, who sinned? Did this guy sin? Or his parents sin? That he's blind. That's interesting. How could this guy sin? He was born blind. 
Well, they thought maybe he sinned while he was in the womb. But who sinned that he's born blind? And if you remember what Jesus said, neither. It's because so the glory of God can be manifested. Sometimes God brings us through these uncertain times so that we can trust him and see him work in a powerful way. Trusting God does not mean that we will not have questions and doubt and apprehensions. These are natural to sinful man. But it means that in spite of our doubts and fears, we will continue to believe that God is good and desires good for us. Isaiah chapter 55 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are his ways and our ways. So maybe we don't understand what's going on. That's because God's ways are so much higher. We just need to trust in God. That's a powerful reminder. We should just trust in God because God is God. We don't need any more reason. He's God, so let's trust in him. One of the amazing stories of trust is Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim and four other missionaries were murdered in 1956 when they tried to take the gospel to a remote jungle tribe in South America. And Elizabeth deeply grieved the loss of her husband. And she had many unanswered questions that she was wrestling through. Then, but one thing was clear in her book. If you haven't read it, it's a great book, Through Gates of Splendor. In that book, one thing comes out powerfully, that she never stopped trusting in a sovereign God, a God who she was convinced would bring some good out of it. The newspapers in Ecuador, the day after they found the bodies of these five missionaries who were speared by these remote tribe, the newspaper headline said, Why such waste? It had the pictures of all the five guys. Why such waste? Well, you see, to the world, this was a waste of five young lives. But she says, Elizabeth says, this was God's plan. And God has his plan and purpose in all things. Amazingly, the widows began to pray for the very people who killed their husbands, the Aka Indians. Plans were made to continue the work of the martyrs. And the widows carried out the work of the slain husbands. And three years after the killings, God answered their prayer. And the Aka Indians began to open their hearts to the gospel. Incredibly, some of the very men who had been speared by the missionaries came to Christ. Elizabeth had prayed that one day these savages would join them in Christian worship and praise. And God had answered her prayer. I had the privilege of meeting one of them at Moody Bible Institute at a conference some years ago. It was incredible to see this guy who was one of the murderers share how God had transformed his life. Well, she wrote an epilogue to her new edition of the book. And let me just read this to you. This is very, very powerful. She says, the Aka story has pointed to one thing. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. God is the God of human history. And he is at work continuously, mysteriously, accomplishing his eternal purposes in us, through us, for us, and in spite of us. Cause and effect are in God's hands. Is it not part of faith to simply let it rest there? God is God. 
I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. The one who laid the earth's foundation and settled its dimensions knows where the lines are drawn. He gives all the light we need for trust and obedience. That's it. That's all we need. We need to trust and we need to obey. I will trust, I will obey, I will follow where you lead, come what may. I will die to myself, and your cross I will take. I will trust you, Lord, I will trust you, I will trust and obey. It's a wonderful song. Tim, come and lead us as we close our service. Let's stand together as we sing this song, and contemplate the thoughts and the words as we sing it. Let's just prayerfully respond to this song. And I will trust, I will obey. And I will follow where you lead, come what may. I will die to myself, and your cross I will take. And I will trust you, yes I will trust you, I will trust and obey. Our Father, that's the prayer of our hearts this morning. We will trust you because you're a good God. You're a sovereign God. And Father, we will not only trust, but we will obey. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time, now, and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.